All right, so uh, Romans chapter 9. Tonight is the night that some of you have been waiting for for about three or four months now. Um, maybe six months, however long it's been. Um, it's been really good working through Romans week by week and just re- being reminded of the gospel of God's grace. Uh, being reminded of the gospel as good news of God and in his grace towards sinners. And we come tonight to one of the most controversial chapters in the Bible. Um, Some people, you might be surprised, that some people would think that the the book of Romans goes straight from chapter 8 to chapter 10. (laughs) And I was surprised to find it there for the first time uh, some years ago. There's an older, really godly lady that I know who has studied her Bible her entire life. And uh, if you look through her Bible, Almost every single verse is underlined, highlighted, circled. There's just decades of notes in her Bible until you get to Romans chapter 9. And it is strangely blank. And it picks back up in 10 and moves on. And it's just one of those weird phenomenons where this is a, a passage of Scripture that, we, that we're not um, used to hearing a lot about um, Maybe because there's just some avoidance of it. Maybe some of this is hard to understand, but I I think it's controversial, not that it's hard to understand because there are more difficult passages to interpret in terms of exegesis. Um, uh, Chapter 7, for example, in Romans is a difficult passage to interpret. We we saw a while back. So I don't think this passage is controversial because it's hard to understand, but because it's hard to accept hard to accept because it makes claims about who we are, who God is, and more than anything, it sets limitations on who we are and what we can do as humans, as creatures. And, and there's, there's one thing that we don't like is limits, right? I saw Ralph driving down Oak Street earlier. He didn't like speed limits. We don't like limits. <laughs> Hey, when you got a car like you got, you just gotta you gotta drive it, you know. Uh, we don't like limits, uh, but this bi- this passage in the Bible gives us limits that we have to learn to accept. And and I, my my goal is as we come to the scripture, we we accept all of scripture because it's scripture. And, and I think there's this process where we have to go through where we have to say, okay, I'm going to accept everything that the Bible says. If the Bible says it, it's true. I have to accept it. But I don't want you to stay there and say, well, I just have to accept this. But because it's true and because it is a revelation of the glory of God, it's, it's more than just acceptable, but it's beautiful. It's, it's wonderful. It's awful, like full of awe. And so that's what I want us to take away from this passage tonight is to be filled with awe and wonder at the greatness of God and the depths of his mercy that he shows to us. Though our sins are many, his mercy is more, as we just saying. And as we get to this passage tonight, I'm asking you to simply follow the flow of the text and to especially keep it connected to everything else we've discussed so far in Romans. This is important, okay? So Romans chapter 9 isn't just some one-off parenthetical chapter that just Paul dropped in the middle of his letter. Okay? It is expecting to be built upon a foundation of chapters 1 through 8. Okay? So we don't need to strip it from its context 
And, and so I think it's very important to rightly understand the chapter that we need to have it in its right context and see the flow uh, of thought. Um, Romans itself is a chain of connected arguments, each one playing off the previous propositions established earlier in the chain. And, and I hope you've seen that as we walk through it from chapter to chapter. We're like building on a foundation. We're adding one block at a time. And Romans chapter 9 um, is playing off of those interconnected uh, building blocks. This chapter will provoke several initial responses based largely upon your previous traditions and presuppositions. Some of you might come to us like, what's the problem with Romans chapter 9? I don't, I don't see a problem with it at all. Some of you are like, oh, you're about to go there. So there's, there's several initial responses that you might have, and it is shaped by your traditions and presuppositions. My first response to it was shock. Wow, that's actually in the Bible. Others include being humbled, amazed, liberated. And I would agree with those, and it kind of follows that path, actually. But regardless of how we feel about it, it is the Word of God, so we should receive it with respect and faith. Okay, so with that said, let's stand together and read the passage. We're going to read the whole chapter. The sermon's going to cover most of it, uh, but I think it's important that we cover the whole thing. This is the word of God. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and hardens whomever he wills. Will you say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? 
But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them shall be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as, I, as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and as we come to it, we ask that you uh, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Uh, that we would not harden our hearts towards your truth, but we'd be moved and shaped into the image of your son, Jesus, through it. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Can be seated. So the title tonight is The Potter's Prerogative. The Potter's Prerogative. And we're going to look at the whole chapter, uh, mainly verses um, 1 through uh, 29. And we're going to look at it in three points. The first point is, what about Israel? What about Israel? Second point is mercy and justice. Mercy and justice. And the third point will be the potter and the clay. The potter and the clay. So first, what about Israel? Uh, the chapter starts out with Paul's great sorrow for his kinsmen. He says in verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were accursed, and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. We see Paul's great love and concern for his brothers, for his kinsmen according to the flesh, for his fellow Jew, for his fellow Israelite. Why does he have great sorrow for them? Because in the majority case, they had rejected Christ. They were not believing in the Messiah, that they were under the wrath of God. They had rejected Jesus and based upon all that Paul has laid out here in this letter, we see that they remain in their sin and they remain under the wrath of God. And Paul has great love for them. They're his kinsmen. He has love for them in a sort of these are my people kind of way. But there's also another type of love where it's like these are God's people kind of way. Like This is God's covenant people and, and they're missing it, right? And they're missing it. 
you think about it like this, it's like where someone's been giving a great blessing. You know, you've been given like a kid, our kids get a great present or something, a great gift, and then they end up despising that gift and they end up missing out on the blessing of that, the enjoyment of that gift because of their hard-heartedness or whatever it may be. And this is the case. God's people, Israel, have been given this great blessing and it has been squandered in that they didn't receive the whole point of it all, which was Jesus Christ. We see that in verse four. It says, they have the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the law, the worship, the promises, the patriarchs. The patriarchs there is speaking of specifically of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob in the book of Genesis. And most importantly, he points out that the Christ, the Messiah, came from their race. There's all these great blessings that they had and they've wasted it. And so his heart goes out to them on those two different levels. These are my kinsmen and they're lost in their sin. And the other side is, is this are, these are the people of the promise, the people who had received the covenants, the offspring of Abraham, and they're missing it. They're missing this blessing. And so it brings them great sorrow. Some of you who might have lost family members might be able to relate to this sorrow in some way, in which you would give anything for them to see the truth of Christ and to embrace Christ and be freed from their sin. And there's a great sorrow there. And I don't know if I could say with Paul that I wish myself to be accursed and cut off so that they could be grafted in. I don't think my love is, is to that point. Um, but that shows you the depth of the love and the depths of the sorrow um, that is there. Uh, before we move on here from that, I do want to point your attention to one thing there in verse 4 where he's speaking of Christ coming from the race, from their race. Sorry, that's, that's verse five. From their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all. You, you don't miss that very clear, um, the, you know, clear indication of Jesus as God. And so in other words, he's saying, from their race, think about this, like from your family came God incarnate. God is in your family tree and you just waste that privilege, right? That's where we're at here. And so based upon that, that sort of thought, and you got to think about this, this is in the back of the mind. This is the world in which they were living in where you, Christianity was new on the scene. In fact, Christianity was considered to be a, a sect of what we would call Judaism today. It was just that the religion of the Jews, it was a sect. It was a strange messianic end times cult in the eyes of many people. Uh, and so the, the Jews would be saying, wait a second. If, if this is true, if the Messiah is coming and saving all these people who believe in him, what about all these Israelites who don't believe, who aren't brought into this? If they had such blessing but have now rejected Christ and are subject to damnation, how is that consistent, Paul, with nothing can separate us from the love of God? How is that consistent with the steadfast love and faithfulness of God to his promises? Do you see the dilemma? How can we trust that all things are going to work together for our good and that nothing can separate us from the love of God if all these Israelites have fallen away from his promises, have fallen away from his covenant. You see the argument? 
And that's really the point of this chapter. The point of this chapter is to demonstrate why it is that some Jews believe, some Jews don't believe, and the Gentiles also fitting into that. And we see that in Paul's main concern there in verse 6, where he asks the, this question, sort of, well, he, he answers an anticipated question. The anticipated question is, has the word of God failed? Has the word of God failed? Has God fallen short on his promises? And he says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And so what he does in this next section is he turns to the Old Testament to demonstrate that it has always been this way. That what he's talking about here, this justification by faith alone and the salvation by grace is nothing new. But it's the way it has always been. He takes them to the scriptures. He says, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. And then he quotes the Old Testament and says, uh, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So what he's pointing through here is back to the Old Testament is this promise was given to Abraham. Remember, there's the whole issue with Abraham and Ishmael and Hagar, um, where um, God promised Abraham a son in his old age. And, and it, there's really no way to do that. He was old. His wife was old and barren. And so his, his wife has the idea, to, you know, let's, uh, let's look at Hagar over here, your servant and your slave. And let's, you know, you have a baby through her. And that becomes Ishmael. There's this whole thing. But God says, no, no, no. Your offspring are going to be named through the son that I'm going to give you. This, this son who is a gift of grace. This son who is a, is a gift of promise. Right? So he's saying it's through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So, so here we see that there's already a family in the lineage of Abraham who one is elect and one is not. Ishmael is not the son of the promise. Do you see the difference? But Isaac is. And God says this, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So the children of Ishmael are not the children of the promise. The children of Isaac are the children of the promise. And so he shows them that from the very, very foundations of Israel itself. Elsewhere in scripture, we see this thing. So who are the... the children of Abraham. How do you get to be a child of Abraham? How many of you saying, Father Abraham, have many sons? How many sons have Father Abraham? I am one. Right arm. Okay, we all did the right arm first. Good. All right. Yeah, if you weren't, didn't grow up in Sunday school, then uh, you just missed out on that. You just missed out on that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I am one of them, and so are you. No, you're not. You're a Gentile. <laughs> you're not descended from Abraham. All right, so what is that about? What is that about? Well, Galatians 3, 7, uh, commenting on that great children's song, says, Know then that is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. How do you become a son of Abraham? You have the same faith as Abraham. It's those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Galatians 3.29, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to what? 
the promise. See the same language there? If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. It doesn't matter what your DNA, what your uh, 23andMe says about your ethnicity. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Jesus speaks of this in his earthly ministries. In John chapter 8, um, he's having this dialogue with the Pharisees. And verse 39, they answered Jesus and they said, Abraham is our father. It's like the ultimate trump card, right? Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. So he goes on to say, hey, your, your father's actually the devil. It's not Abraham, it's the devil. And so what Jesus is saying is that there are people who are Abraham's children who aren't Abraham's children. Not all Israel is Israel that we see there. That it is those of faith that have always been the true Israel of God. And this is according to the sovereign election of God. And we saw this back in chapter 8, did we not? That those whom he foreknew, he predestined. And those whom he predestined, he called. And so we saw this foreknowing, this this not just knowing about someone, but knowing them intimately in a, in a relational way. God set his love on those whom he foreknew. And those whom he foreknew, he predestined, and those whom he predestined, he called that golden chain, right? And Paul's saying it has always been this way. As far back as Ishmael and Isaac. And then he gives the example of Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau. Let's read verses 9 um, through 13. Verse 9, For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So let's look at the example of Jacob and Esau. First thing we see is that though they were not yet born, though they were not yet born, this is the idea of predestination. That their destinies were determined for them before they were ever born. Though they were not yet born. Then it says, and they had done nothing good or bad. So they had not yet born, hadn't done anything good or bad. And this points to what we call unconditional election. Unconditional election. God's election of Jacob over Esau had nothing to do with what they did, either good or bad. It was predestined before they were born and on the basis of nothing good or bad that they had done. So it was predestined and unconditional election. So what was the purpose? In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not of works, but because of him who calls. This is pointing to God's will, pointing to God's will as that determining factor of God's purposes of election. Why Jacob uh, over Esau? Because of the purpose of God's will, this mysterious purpose of his will. 
We know that it was not because of anything in Jacob or Esau, because it was done before they were born and before they had done anything good or bad. But it was in order that God's purpose would continue. Not of works, but because of him who calls. You hear now that goes all the way back. Not of works. Not of works, but because of him who calls. And then he says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This is God who said that. Now, some of you, that might just hit you like a ton of bricks. That God would ever say something like that. That God would ever name a person and say, I hated them. I looked it up in the Greek. It means hated. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And this is a quotation from Malachi chapter 1, uh, verses 2 and 3. But the reality is God showed favor to Jacob, that he showed grace to Jacob and not Esau. This is nothing new. This has been in the Bible since the very beginning. And Paul is pointing that out to his readers. And so God's choice to show favor to Jacob over Esau and the implications of unconditional election inevitably leads to this objection. And you're probably thinking it right now. That's not fair. That's not fair. And so that moves us into the second point, mercy and justice. What I hope you notice as you're walking through this passage is that Paul anticipates your objections. Then ask yourself, are you on the wrong side of this debate? Are you arguing with Paul? I was when I first came to this passage, right? I found that I was asking the questions that Paul was responding to, which was good because that means I was picking up what he was putting down, if you know what I'm saying. But you don't want to be on the wrong side of this debate. Because if you're on the wrong side of this debate, then you're on the wrong side. So ask yourself, are you asking the same questions that Paul is anticipating? So there's two sides of this. If you are, thank God that God has revealed his will to us in such a way that he knows what we're thinking. He knows how we're going to receive this, right? He doesn't expect us just to fall into our laps and we pet it like a little puppy dog. Like sometimes it falls into our laps like a chainsaw and we got to figure out what to do with it. But Paul anticipates your objections. That's not fair. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So Dr. Sproul 
has this illustration uh, to demonstrate this, and it's the best way I can think to do it. So um, he speaks, Dr. Sproul, as a, as a seminary, as a college professor, and he talks about coming into the class, this large class of, of college freshmen, um, of about 300 students in the room. And they, they go over their syllabus and they go over their schedule and they understand that there's one term paper due um, every month of the semester. And they all understand that it's due on this date um, and they all, all have to be uh, turned in. Well, the first month comes around and it's time to turn in the papers and uh, 275 students turn in their papers and 25 others do not. And some of them come to him and they say, Dr. Sproul, Dr. Sproul, I just, I didn't have time to finish my paper. I'm, I'm new to college. I, I'm still trying to figure out how to settle my schedule together. I just couldn't get it in. Can you give me an extension? So Dr. Sproul gives them a, a two-day extension to get their paper in. So they say, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And they, they turn in the paper a couple days later. Next month rolls around. It's time to turn in the next paper and 250 students turn in papers. 50 students do not turn in papers. The students come back to him, Dr. Sproul, Dr. Sproul, all our professors are giving us you know, papers at the same time, we couldn't get it in, we still haven't learned to manage our schedule right, can you please give us an extension, please give us an extension. All right, well you knew the paper was due today, didn't you? Yes, we did. Okay, well I'll give you an extension. And he gives them an extension. Next month rolls around. 200 students turn in their paper. The other 100 walk into the room like it's no big deal. And Dr. Sproul starts calling in the names. Johnson, do you have your paper? No, sir, I do not. F in the great book. What does Johnson say? That's not fair. That's not fair. You let them last month get an extension. Why won't you let me have an extension? Did you know that the paper was due today? Yes, I did. That's not fair. So when we come to the issue of fairness versus justice, is anything that Dr. Sproul did there, was anything unjust in what he did? It was on the syllabus. They knew the paper was coming. Did Dr. Sproul owe them an extension because he had given one in the past? No, he didn't. Add to the story, Johnson continues to, to complain about the unfairness of this professor who used to be his favorite professor. He says, oh, so you want fairness? Well, if I recall, last month you didn't turn in your paper either, did you? No, I didn't. He goes back in his great book, F. What? That's not fair. Do you want fairness or do you want mercy? There's your question. So when it comes to issues of justice that we have with God, we don't want fairness. We should never be asking God to give us fairness, to give us what we deserve. What we want is mercy. But for mercy, to be mercy, it can't be owed. 
grace, by definition, is something that is not owed. So the moment you demand someone to show mercy or to, to give grace, you are no longer asking for mercy or grace. In order for grace to be grace, it has to be given freely without compulsion. And so when God has favor for Jacob over Esau, there's nothing unjust in that. There's nothing unjust in that. This is mercy. This is grace. Another example of this is, okay, Paul uses the word injustice. Is there injustice in God in this situation? So we need to think about this. So you have this, 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 let's just call it this, this center point of justice, God's actions towards humanity. And let's think about the category of justice. All those who receive justice from God fits in this center category. Well, there's another type of interaction with God that you can have, and, and that would be non-justice. You either have justice or you have non-justice. So non-justice is on the outside of that circle, right? Do we agree? There's justice and then there's non-justice. Well, there's a two different types of, there's another type of non-justice, and that would be injustice. So non-justice is, is nothing moral, nothing wicked, nothing evil or sinful. Non-justice is not given. That's what we would call grace or mercy. But injustice is unrighteous. It's evil. So whoever God shows mercy receives non-justice and the others receive justice. No one receives injustice. You see, because we've already laid the foundation that no one is righteous, that all have fallen short of the glory of God. And there's no one who seeks God. There's no one who does good, right? And so God is just to punish all. So you either receive justice or the non-justice of grace. No one receives injustice from God. And so is there injustice in God? No, there is not. He says, then he goes forward, and he says, <clears throat> this is not on the basis of human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. I like the King James. It's not on him who runs or wills, but on him who has mercy, on God who has mercy. So all of this is based in God. Then he goes on again and gives another example of Pharaoh in verses 17 through 18. He talks about the hardening of, of Pharaoh's heart, that Pharaoh was raised up for this very purpose. So God raised up Pharaoh in order to display his power over him. So this brings us to the question of this hardening of heart. So how does God harden someone's heart? Because it says, um, it says right here um, in verse 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. How does God harden his heart? Well, how do you harden Pharaoh's heart? How do you harden Pharaoh's heart? He continued to reveal himself to him over and over again. You see, when Pharaoh wouldn't let the Israelites go, when God sends Moses to him, 
he, he wouldn't let him go. He, he hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart towards the Lord. Well, God doesn't just leave it there. He comes back and he comes back with plagues. He comes back with displays of power and particularly displays of power that triumph over the Egyptian gods. And he continues to show Pharaoh his glory, his might, and his power. And, and every time Pharaoh would see it and harden his heart toward it. He hardens his heart towards what he sees of God. We call this this judicial hardening. Because you might say, well, if, you know, uh, unregenerate person's heart is already hard how can it be hardened further well we can see that there there is a a type of judicial hardening where uh, god sort of gives sinners over to their sin and their hatred of god uh, and hardens their heart but the way that god hardened pharaoh's heart is through just simply showing him more and more glory, because that's what sinners are going to do in our flesh when we see god we hate god we don't want his glory. His glory actually makes us harder. Uh, I remember a season of my life where my heart was hard towards the Lord and the things of God. And nothing made me more bitter or more hardened than someone who was actually godly. Someone who was actually righteous and non-hypocritical in it. That would frustrate me. Why? Because my heart was hard. And I was seeing the glory of God. And the only way I knew to respond to that in that time was to continue to harden my heart toward it. And I thank God for his grace and softening my hard heart, that he had mercy on me, that he willed to have mercy on me and not to harden me. I'm thankful for this. I was looking at you, David, that I had a conversation with uh, David's dad this, this week and we're talking through this passage and he really helped me see this way in which Pharaoh's heart was hardened so I want to give him a shout out if you're listening there Pastor Mike <clears throat> but the, the Puritans had this phrase uh, I'm assuming it originated with them he says the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay the same radiant glory of God that will either melt a heart or harden it like clay. And as we see in this passage, the outcome of that is ultimately God's right to decide according to the, his own purposes. Either way, he's going to display his power and his might and his glory through you. So the sovereign judge has the absolute right to show mercy to whomever however and whenever he sees fit and to harden others in order to accomplish his ultimate purposes. And this leads to the next inevitable objection. If God does not have mercy, if God decides not to have mercy and to harden a sinner's heart instead, why does he still hold them accountable? Why does he still hold them accountable? If he hardened their heart, why does he hold them accountable. Have you ever asked that before? I've asked that before. Again, Paul's anticipating our questions. Let's move this into the final point, the potter and the clay. Why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? This God's will to harden 
my heart. Who can resist that? Why do you still find fault with me? I've heard that before. Notice how Paul responds to that objection. Notice how he responds to it. He plays the ultimate, the ultimate trump card. He doesn't give a nuanced philosophical defense of God's judgment in this, which I do think can be made from other parts of Scripture. But much like God speaking out of the whirlwind to Job, Paul puts us all in our place who would question God. Verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Take a minute to think of that. Who are you to question God? Ultimately, we are but creatures. Have you ever kicked in an ant bed? Have you ever... (laughs) Have you ever mowed over an ant bed, kicked it in? Did you think twice about it? Do you think about how they would possibly feel about that? I mean, to be honest, a couple of days ago, I was going over to someone's house, and where I usually park my bike, there's like this anthill. Not that, you know what, it was winter, I kicked it, there was nothing in there, so let me just kick it again. A bunch of ants showed up, and I was like, well, hey, it's not parking in here. Then the next week, when I visited them, there were like 20 more little anthills, and I'm like, you know what, it's ain't worth it. So according to your judgment, you had a better purpose for that piece of ground than the ants did, right? Like, listen closely to this. You are closer to the ant in terms of glory as a creature than you are to God, the creator. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? We are pottery in the hands of a master potter. And no one questions the creator, the creations of a potter. Look look at verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay? Listen to that. Has the potter no right over the clay? to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. This is an illustration we got from N.D. Wilson. No relation, I think. He says, from the same lump of clay, one might make a vase, a porcelain vase, or a toilet. And it is the prerogative of the potter to use his clay however he prefers. No one questions the creation of the potter. He is the potter. The clay does not answer back. So God has created 
these various vessels to display his own glory and his own wisdom and his own uh, might. Some of those have been prepared. Um, where did it go? Some of them have been prepared for destruction. Some have been prepared for the glory. But both of them have been prepared to reveal his glory as the master potter. Now, verses 22 and 23 clue us into God's purpose for the vessels prepared for destruction. So let's look at that together. Verse 22 and 23. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? So these vessels were created to display his glory, display namely his power and his mercy. So if you're a believer in Jesus, you are a vessel of mercy. You have been chosen to know and to experience the greatest riches of the glory of God. And it is completely by grace alone. Unconditional. Nothing in you. If you look at verses 24 and 25, we see that we have been called when we were not God's people and he has made us his people. You see, we have all come out of one lump of clay, one rebellious lump of clay. And God, out of free mercy and grace, chose to, to pull us out of that lump and to make us a vessel of mercy prepared for glory. And there is an apologetic. I don't want to skirt around the issue of what do we do with the reprobate? What do we do with those who are uh, in, destined for hell, for destruction? As I said, there, there are places in Scripture where I think we can make the argument philosophically and theologically as why this is just of God to do so. Because we have to understand since the fall of Adam, we've been rebellious, Clay. There's, we are not innocent. Right? We, we did not turn our papers in on time. right? We, we deserve wrath. And so no one gets non-justice. But ultimately, the ultimate, if you just go straight to the bottom of it all, it is this. God desires to show grace to sinners show mercy to sinners, to, to rescue sinners. And there must be a knowledge of what you're rescued from. We would not understand the depths of God's grace or mercy if we didn't understand the depths of sin and God's justice and wrath towards that sin. And so this, this does hit you heavy. It should hit you heavy. But here's what I hope it is. If you, if you haven't given much thought to this before, I hope you sit back in this and, and I hope you're a believer in Jesus Christ. And if, and if you're not, that you come to him. And we'll, we'll talk about that in just a second. But if you are a believer in Christ, I hope it makes you do this. Why me, Lord? Why me? And just sit there for a while. Just sit in that. 
And God will do something with that gratitude uh, that will be transformative in your life. It will be the, the, the fuel of worship in your life. It'll be the fuel of all obedience and mission and everything else in your life. If you just sit in that for a little while, that you chose me, you had mercy on me, a, a, a rebellious piece of pottery, pottery that you just busted open and put back together into the image of yourself. We should be incredibly grateful. Listen to this, and we'll close with this. <clears throat> Verse 29. If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. If God had not moved toward us in his unconditional love in Christ, we would still be in our sin. We would still be in our sin. We would be prepared and headed for destruction if God did not move towards us. It's all of grace, you see. This doctrine of unconditional election, as I said a few weeks ago, is not a doctrine that promotes pride. Because what it says is, God, if you hadn't saved me, I would have made Sodom and Gomorrah look like Branson, Missouri. Branson, Missouri is this very happy, cheery place. The most lost, rebellious, debaucherous person walking around this campus right now could have been you. So you do not look at them as that lost, debaucherous person. You look at them as someone who needs God's grace the same way that you did. If it weren't for God's grace, you would be right there with them. And here's the thing that I often forget. The most lost, debauched person walking around this campus right now can be born again and made new. They can be snatched up out of that rebellious lump of clay and folded into something way beautiful, more beautiful than me, right? And that's something we're going to have to get our heads around, especially if we're goody two-shoes. If we've been goody two-shoes all our lives, we're going to have to get our heads around. Guys, when, when your generation and my kids' generation and uh, the last bit of my life, I can see, where we're going to have to get our heads around, what do we do with all these transsexual people coming to Christ. What do we do with this? How does the gospel collide with that worldview and redeem it? And here's what you have to go into that knowing. It does and it will. And that's all you need to know. We don't compromise on God's truth, but it is God's truth and his love, the same love that saved us that brought us in, that will bring them in, in time, in God's purposes. Now, God may have plans for destruction for this nation. I tend to think he does, but I would love to be wrong. And if we are vessels devoted for destruction as a nation, so be it for his glory, and let's be faithful through the midst of it. But it doesn't have to be that way, and who are we to think that that's the way that it is? 
we proclaim the gospel, we proclaim the grace of God, and the same love that drew us into Christ will drink, bring others in as well. And we're, we're going to sing this in just a bit. This is the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in. Listen, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. If God had not drawn us in by his love, we would have refuse to even taste of what he was offering. We would have missed the blessings just like Israel did. We would have missed it and perished in our sin. But God has mercy on those whom he wills to have mercy. And aren't you thankful that he's had mercy upon you? So as we close here, are some points of application. Those whom God elects to save, he calls and draws. So if you desire to follow Christ, if you desire to experience his mercy and not his wrath, call upon Jesus. This doctrine of election does not undermine any invitation of coming to Christ in the gospel. You might be playing that philosophical game right now, saying, well, if God has already elected those who are going to be saved, then what does that matter? It's just going to work itself out. No. Those whom God foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, those he called, and those he calls, he justifies. And how are we justified? Through faith in Jesus Christ. And we'll see here in a bit that uh, potentially the next time we're together, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you call on the name of the Lord and you are saved, it is because he has foreknew you. He has predestined you. He has called you. And he has shown you his love and drawn you into the feast. So call upon Jesus. And if you are a believer, you should surrender to this truth in humble worship, both now in song and in thanksgiving, but also day by day and moment by moment. We have been loved by God. We have been chosen out of a lump of rebellious clay and are being fashioned into the image of the Son of God. What a blessing. What amazing grace and how sweet and truly awful is this gospel. So let's pray. God, we thank you for your amazing grace that saved wretches like us. God, may we not ever forget the true depths of our depravity apart from you that we would have perished in our sin had you not loved us first. That we would have continued to harden our heart towards your glory as you continue to show it day in and day out. But you've had mercy. you softened our hearts, made us able and willing to come to you in faith. And you've saved us. God, I pray for those who are wrestling through this passage tonight and the, the implications of this theology and what it means for their life and for those whom they love. And God, I pray that your spirit would be near to them, give them discernment. God, I pray that the truth of what I have said would be tested and evaluated according to the truth of your word and that your spirit would lead your people into all truth as you promised. And God, I pray that the truth that is there would move us to worship Christ to give him glory in our lives, to build our lives upon him, to, to spread this gospel of unmerited grace to the, the worst sinner we can find so that you would be magnified among us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.